So this morning, we're going to talk about uh, what we might call Adam's original glory, or his state of righteousness. So you might want to turn to Genesis uh, chapter 2, and I'm going to read some selections out of here, starting at verse 4, which is actually where the chapter division should begin, because verses 1 through 3 belong to the, to the uh, previous chapter. Uh, verse 4, which starts the, uh, starts the creation story, or expands on the creation story of man. And uh, I'll, I'll skip along here, and I'll alert you to where I'm skipping to. Beginning at verse 4, on the sixth day... I'm sorry, that's not verse 4. I took that verse out. Shame. Uh, Beginning at verse... uh, That's a great question. This is what happens when you do things on the computer and you don't fix it. All right, it's starting somewhere, and we'll get to verse 4. On the sixth day, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And now we're at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in the eastern part of Eden, and there he put the man whom he had made. The Lord caused to grow from the soil every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He also caused the tree of life to grow in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowing of good and evil. And now we skip to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch it, or to dress it and keep it, as you may have. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowing of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, you will die the very same day. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And we'll skip to verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and from the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. And verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So I somewhat compressed version of the creation of man. Well, it's an interesting and an important question to ask what kind of man was Adam before his apostasy in the Garden of Eden? Because we can't tell from looking at ourselves. I mean, I mean, obviously he was a man, a human, like all of us, in that he had a body and he had a brain and he had a mind and all that kind of thing. But that really doesn't tell us what was so magnificently and wondrously different about Adam from us, because he was indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, he was uh, He was different from us in a way that is going to be very hard for us to comprehend that a human being could be. We have to ask the question of what was his relationship to God like? How did he relate to God? And when it comes to comparison with us, was he a little better? Was he categorically different? Is it a difference in shades of color, as if 
the difference between gray and white or gray and black or is it in fact the difference between white and black? And is that the difference in Adam himself from his creation to the moment after or of his sin? Now, as I said, it's difficult for us to comprehend because we live after sin has entered the world, after death has entered the world, after the corruption of our whole nature, what... uh, theologians like to call total depravity, after what the New Testament calls the subjection of the whole world to the bondage of sin, the whole creation groaning in bondage, waiting for the day of redemption through Jesus Christ. And even if we get it doctrinally right, even if we can make a list of points, well, Adam was like this, and he was like this, and he was like this, it is still very difficult for us to personally understand how a man could be like Adam was. And it's even more difficult for us to understand how a man like Adam could have done what Adam did. So, just to begin, we have to, in our minds, Imagine a completely different kind of world from the one that we live in. We have to imagine a world without sin. Not one single sin. We have to imagine a world without the judgment that comes upon sin. No death. No men hating one another. No lust. No greed. No shame. No guilt. A world without selfishness or robbery or murder or any of the other external expressions of fallen mankind that we see around us today so uh, thoroughly uh, uh, eating its way through the world and without any of the corruptions of mankind that are not outside of us but are inside of us. So a different world. A world without sin, without the effects of sin, without the fruit of sin, without the punishment and judgment of sin. Then we have to imagine a different man. Not a man like you and me. Genesis 1.26 And God said, Let us make man in our image, after or according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every crawling or creeping thing that crawls upon the earth. So... God created man in his own image. And then a little rhyme in the Hebrew. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God saw, the end of the sixth day, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. 
After the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the whole process of creation, the separation of the, uh, of, of the land from the sea, the setting of the stars and the sun and the heaven, the creation of all the creatures, after all of those things, God pronounced them good. At the end of the sixth day, when God had created man, male and female, in his own image and according to his own likeness, having completed then his entire creative process, he said it was very good. So we have to imagine a man created by God, but a man created by God whom this infinitely holy, who this perfectly righteous, who this all-knowing God who can see to the very recesses and depths of the heart and mind, who this God could say was not okay. Not whom this God could look on Adam and say, well, you know, not too shabby. I did pretty good there. No. Seeing all of those things, he could look on man and say he was very good. How in the world can God pronounce man to be good? Wasn't it even Jesus who said, there is only one who is good. God. Well, this good man, this very good man, to be a very good man, can only have been one thing, just as the text says, made in the image of God. Only the man who reflects his image and reflects it as perfectly as a human being can, only this kind of creation, only this kind of man, could God himself pronounce good. So then we have this phrase, the image of God. All right, then Adam was made in the image of God. We can follow that. But what does that mean? I mean, I mean, because there have been some pretty strange things said about the image of God over time. I am not kidding. There was in history a whole group of sectarian heretics who have unfortunately been replicated today uh, by Kenneth Copeland, who say that the image of God and, and all the other, uh, uh, the, that little club of, of, of charismatic uh, prosperity teachers, who actually teach that God has a body. Oh yes, he's got a body, just like you and me. And that's what the image of God is. God, God made man. He made him just like God. In fact, we're all gods. We're all little gods. Uh, you can hear that on TV if you bother to watch it, but I wouldn't suggest it. So we can say, well, that's silly. Of course, God doesn't have a body. I mean, we know that from the, from the scriptures. That can't be the image of God. That's absurd. Well, you can turn on your popular evangelical radio programs where you can get a little bit of uh, help for your problems, and you can hear uh, the psychological self-help evangelical movement teach you that the image of God is all manner of things that we still have. Uh, it works this way. People, you know, all their problems come from low self-esteem. You, know, you, don't, you don't think you're as good as you really are. And so, uh, in order to help people get to that point where they 
feel better about themselves, we teach them that, well, after all, they're in the image of God, too. We're all uh, created in the image of God. We all have the image of God, and God loves His image, so He must love you. And so, the image of God becomes some sort of nebulous, fuzzy, uh, warm thing that makes us feel better about ourselves because we all have it. Well, the image of God is none of those things, obviously. Nor is the image of God creativity, nor is the image of God having reason, or a mind, or the capacity to think, or the capacity to obey, or the capacity to love, or any of the other things that you will hear popular today uh, in the, in the uh, preaching and uh, radio programs of the day. Because the crucial issue behind all of these people is that they deny sovereign grace, and they deny what mankind has become which is totally depraved. And so if we deny what mankind has become, then we can locate the image of God in any number of, 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 of areas. Well, the scriptures are quite clear on what the image of God is. Two places. Colossians 3.10 and you, and you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after or according to the image of him that created him. You have put on a new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's the first text. We'll come back to it. The second is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, where Paul says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on again the new man, which after God, or we can insert in that, which after the image of God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Knowledge, righteousness, true holiness. They say, well, wait a second. This is in the New Testament, and it's talking about what happens to people after they're saved. I mean, what does this have to do with Adam and the image of God and all that kind of thing? Well, it's a simple argument which says that uh, if Adam in his fall lost the image of God and if God in redeeming mankind restores the image of God then we can understand by what he says will happen in the recreation in the new man we can understand what Adam was like in the first creation that's the standard theological argument and I think it's a good one so we have these three things then that describe, and these are the only three things in all of the scripture that are described as the image of God. We have the knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. So what does it mean then that Adam uh, had the image of God in knowledge? Does it mean he was smart? Uh, he could do physics? classify all the animals into their correct classifications taxonomically? Could it be that? Maybe Adam could design a suspension bridge and, and do meteorological forecasts. Now, that would be some knowledge right there. Maybe Adam, so to speak, got A's in school and graduated valedictorian of the class of year one. Maybe it's that. Maybe he was really a sharp guy happened to run into a website written by someone who was supposedly reformed who as much as said that's what Adam's knowledge was. 
Now, another person might come along and say, well, that's silly. It was the practical knowledge, because after all, Adam didn't have suspension bridges or meteorological forecasts, but he, he knew how to fly fish and can hides. I can tell you that. He was one sharp guy. He knew how to plant things. Remember, he was in the Garden of Eden, his dress didn't keep it. He knew how to plant things and make them grow just right. It's that practical knowledge. He could repair an engine without the manual, and he could program his VCR, which is a difficult thing. Well, it doesn't seem like it would probably be that. Maybe it was religious truth. Now, maybe that might be getting close. Sounds more reasonable. He could write a theology textbook. He could uh, classify the heavenly hosts. He could debate with scoffers. Of course, there weren't any, but were there one? Maybe he could debate with them. Well, in spite of the fact that that's getting very close to the answer, the idea of Adam having uh, an accurate knowledge of religious truth, that's not it. Primarily... Primarily, the knowledge of God, as defined by Scripture, which we'll come to in a moment, is an intimate knowledge of God Himself. It's what we would call fellowship with God, or communion with God. Because, in point of fact, that is where all doctrine should lead. And any doctrine, or any person in whom the truth of God does not lead to fellowship with God, does not have the knowledge of God. The word in Colossians 3.10, obviously it's a Greek word since the New Testament was written in Greek, and it's the word epignosko, uh, which comes from the word, you've probably heard the word gnosis as in Gnostic. Uh, those were... Uh, 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 group of early uh, a sort of movement in the, in the early church that uh, prided themselves on their knowledge in fact Paul is attacking them in Colossians uh, this kind of mystical knowledge that they had Epigenosco is simply a compound of the word that intensifies it so that when you have this word what it essentially means is not just knowledge like, like you might have a list of things, it means a kind of intensive knowledge, a complete knowledge, a through and through knowledge, uh, what we might call a heartfelt knowledge, a knowledge of experience. Uh, it's it's the kind of knowledge of intimacy. In fact, in fact, this is the word that is used as the euphemism for marital relations between husband and wife. Five times it will say something to the effect that and Adam knew his wife and she bore a son, or someone else. So, his knowledge then was not merely intellectual. In fact, I like what Herman Hooksma says about this. It's a marvelous quote. He says, His knowledge was not intellectual or natural, so that he knew who and what God is, nor was it a ready-made system of theology or dogmatics, but it was the original uprightness of his mind by virtue of which he immediately knew God, both through the revelation of all the works of God around him and through the direct word of God that was addressed to him in paradise. And through this knowledge, he had a living contact with the Most High, the fellowship of friendship that was his life. 
From the first moment of his existence, Adam was conscious of this friendship. He knew God and he loved him and he was conscious of God's love to him. He enjoyed the favor of God, he received the word of God, he walked with God, he talked with him, and he dwelt in the house of God in paradise the first. So Adam then, bearing the image of God, had this intimate knowledge of God that led to communion, uninterrupted communion and fellowship with God. He certainly knew the truths of God. There's no question about that. Adam could distinguish truth from error. But it led to this this intimate uh, communion. Now, of course, that's radically different from what we experience. Paul says, we know in part and prophesy in part. We see through a glass darkly. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. John says, Beloved, we are the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When you have the true revelation of God, you become, in essence, the bearer of the image of God. And as Adam had the truest revelation of God, and as Adam had the revelation of God without the clouding of sin, either in him or anywhere else, He then had the image of God in knowledge without mistake, without error, without filter, without prejudice. He was known of God and so himself knew God. He saw God as he is and so he himself became like him, as John says. Our minds are just filled with error, just filled with all kinds of misconception and falsehood. It's like this pit that we just climb out of a little bit at a time. But Adam never even had the pit to fall into. He never had a wrong thought about God. He was surrounded by truth and his knowledge of God was pure. So he had the image of God in knowledge. Then he had the image of God in righteousness author of Ecclesiastes says lo this only have I found that God has made man upright he goes on but he has sought out many inventions God has made man upright Adam according to Ephesians was created in the image of God in righteousness now what is righteousness well we know that righteousness respects God's character as a judge. The whole concept of righteousness is essentially legal. Uh, It implies a court of law uh, in which God judges whether or not an accusation can be brought against the defendant. And God never makes mistakes. He's a perfect judge. He's not confused by... Uh, technicalities or shifty arguments you can see right to the heart of the matter so it really defines essentially if you will a negative thing can an accusation be brought against this man is Adam guilty and of course he wasn't Adam was righteous before God there was no guilt because he had committed no sin. 
And if you have no guilt in the court of law, then your standing before the judge is perfect. And Adam's standing before the judge was perfect. Adam could say, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. I wouldn't dare say that. But Adam could. Adam could say it without fear. He could say it without chutzpah. He could say it uh, uh, without pride. It was true. And that means that Adam related to God without a mediator. Because there is no need for a mediator where there is no sin. Because where there is no sin, there is no guilt. And where there is no guilt, there is no judgment. And so, there is no need for anyone to intervene to head off the judgment through intercession and atonement. Adam related to the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with no mediator. He had no more need of a mediator than the man Christ Jesus, because Adam had no sin. He had no more need of the mediator than the angels who did not fall, because neither they nor Adam had sin. His righteousness was his own. didn't come from somewhere else. It was in his account at the bank, so to speak. It was perfect. There was no flaw. It was extensive. Covered everything. There wasn't any place he missed. It was perpetual up to that historic point. There was no interruption in it. Because if there had been any of those things, Adam would not be righteous. Because the man who is guilty of one point of the law is guilty of the entire law, James says. Now, of course, realistically speaking, it's not as if Adam had anything to boast about. Because his righteousness was simply how God had created him. He didn't bring himself into existence. He didn't, he didn't do anything for himself. He just, one day he was dust in the ground and one day God formed him into a man and breathed into him life and gave him a living soul and he was righteous because he bore the image of God. Now, there's more to it in the sense that righteousness doesn't just sit out by itself. Righteousness isn't exclusively negative because the way God has arranged things according to his nature he's a just person of just God and so he is the rewarder of righteousness it is his nature to reward that is righteousness to reward all that is righteousness Proverbs 11 to him that sows righteousness shall be a sure reward Proverbs 13 to the righteous good shall be repaid that is the nature of God and this means that as Adam was perfectly righteous so then he was perfectly blessed by God. Psalm 37, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. Psalm 92, the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. They shall flourish in the courts of our God, bring forth fruit in old age and be fat and flourishing. Proverbs 10, the desire of the righteous shall be granted. Proverbs 12, the house of the righteous shall stand. Proverbs 12, again, the root of the righteous shall not be moved. Proverbs 11, the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Every imaginable blessing flowed to Adam on account of his bearing the righteous image of the righteous God. 
And he had the most important one, too. Righteousness delivers from death. Because the righteous shall enter into the gate of the Lord. Because, Proverbs 11, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. What did Adam have in the Garden of Eden? He had the tree of life. That was the fruit that belonged to the righteous. He had communion, he had intimacy, he had access, he had relationship. He had no fear, he had no death, he had no judgment, and he had the promise, as long as he continued, of nothing but blessing and riches and glory and life, unending. Finally, he had the image of God in true holiness. Well, the righteousness question is essentially, we said, negative. It's the question of, are you guilty? Did you do it? Can anyone say, you committed this crime, you committed this sin, and you have no defense, you're guilty? It's a negative issue. The question of holiness is not, certainly not exclusively negative. It has to do not with one's legal guilt, with whether you did it or not. It has to do with your nature. It has to do with what you are inside and how that expresses itself outside. It has to do with the nature of God. First John 1.5 This is the message which we heard of Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Not merely the absence of darkness, but the presence of light. Adam's inside nature, what he was like, his heart, was true holiness. We can see that there's a difference between righteousness and holiness in the, in the legal and personal sense, because it's certainly true for us. Through the work of Christ, we have a perfect legal righteousness if we're in Him. But we know, in point of fact, that if we look into our hearts, we are filled with sin and corruption. So, legal righteousness and true holiness is separate. Adam had both. All of his deeds were upright, yes. He committed no sin, yes. He walked in every right way, yes. But his heart was pure and undefiled. Not only did he not commit sin, he had no sin nature. Not only was he without the taint or stain of sin, he was without the tendency to sin. Not only did he not have a desire to sin, like every man since the fall, including Adam himself, he had a heart after good. He not only was inclined to good things, he delighted in good things. We could even say of Adam that to do the will of God was his delight, even his meat and drink, because he had no will to sin. There was nothing inside of him, not a thing inside of him, that lusted after sin, that urged after sin, that when he saw sin he thought, now that is really great, let's go that way. It wasn't anything like that inside of him. Hooksman again puts it 
It's the original goodness of man's nature according to which it was wholly, completely motivated by the love of God. With all of its powers moved in the direction of, the God, of God so that the operation of his heart and soul and mind and will and all of his strength were in accord with the will of God. What's the first commandment? To love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is what Adam was. He had that intimate knowledge and communion of God. Before God, he walked without mediator. He was the friend of God. And he was holy. Inside and outside. He had these things from the very beginning. There was not a moment from when God created him that he was not this way. He didn't have a, this, uh, this uh, mental uh, cinema, this mental film track that we get in our heads of sin, of every past sin we've ever created, uh, ever, ever committed. Uh, he didn't have any old sins for his corrupt heart to savor in moments of weakness. He wasn't like that. He delighted in righteousness without interruption, perpetually. And he did it in a perfect world. When Jesus came, as the second Adam, as it says in the New Testament, he came in a fallen world. A much bigger task to be perfect in a fallen world. A world under the governorship of Satan. A world of in which creation is subject to bondage. A world in which every last thing is corrupted by evil and tilted against good. But in Adam's case, everything cooperated for his goodness and righteousness. He had harmony with God. He had harmony with the creation. Because the light of God's righteousness penetrated everything. Illuminated everything. Everything pointed to the goodness and glory of of God. All things were obedient and holy. Except, of course, for one thing. One being. And that being, who was a liar and murderer from the beginning, after his own fall, would initiate the event that astonishingly, incredibly, mind-blowingly, if you will, would bring Adam and all of his offspring plummeting to the depths of hell. The most terrible apostasy ever committed. Trump's Judas. Judas doesn't even get in the book when you look at Adam's apostasy. Because Judas was a sinner. Adam wasn't a sinner. Adam was holy and righteous and perfect and had wonderful and marvelous communion with God. And from that high, unimaginable place, he would fall. And all of mankind until time ends would suffer the results. 